0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning and thank you for uh, each week bringing the, the church into this place if we 've never had the opportunity to meet my name is jamie it 's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at crosspoint and so just thanks again for for gathering It is a great joy if you 're gathered with us for crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into uh, your living room or wherever you happen to be watching and so uh, as we have been celebrating already this morning, we get to really today is this entry into Holy Week and we start by celebrating what has historically been called Palm Sunday and so Excited to be able to dive into this. We're taking a couple week break from our series through the life of Abraham to celebrate Holy Week. As we look ahead now from this day forward, we look ahead to Good Friday and what happened on the cross, and then beyond that to Resurrection Sunday, to an empty tomb where one week from today we will gather in this particular place and we will be able to declare the truth that we already know to be true, right? That he is risen, and it's because of the work of Christ that we get to gather here uh, this morning. And so to help us... um, encounter all that God has for us this week. We want to look at the account of Palm Sunday. Uh, you heard it read by, by the kids. I will not be able to top that. They were fantastic. Uh, but let's open up our Bibles and I'm, we're going to start just a few verses prior in the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. There's pew Bibles that you can use or you can go to cplife.church on your phone. And you'll see a card there that you can click that says sermon notes. And the text will be there as well as space to take notes. But I want to start just before the account of what's referred to as the triumphal Entry because we're going to see the way these flow together. That there's a crowd that's beginning to gather, and there's some folks that we meet along the way that help showcase a few things for us uh, that I think will be really key not only for this morning but as we enter into this week and we hope to have a posture of just asking the Lord to reveal Himself more fully to us. Well, let me go ahead and read this Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29 through chapter 21, verse 11. Says this: As they went out of Jericho a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, he touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Chapter 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So, this is God's word for us this morning. And as we begin this journey through Holy Week, I wanna start by asking a question. It's a question that is posed, I believe, in this text. It's one we see throughout the scriptures, whether it's explicitly stated or implicitly. I think it's, if we're honest, it's a question that drives us. It can be a question that haunts us. It can be a question, right, that as we wrestle with, keeps us up at night, causes us a lot of just thoughts and anxiety and all that. And the question is this like, what are you searching for? What is it that drives you? What is it that occupies your attention? What is it that when you pay attention to your soul and your heart, your emotions, what is it that's driving you? What are you searching for? And certainly in life, there can be rather insignificant things that we search for, right? Like my wife and I being at Costco a week or so ago, and she's like, do you really have to walk down every aisle? I'm like, yes, I must search for it, right? Like the thing that it is that I think I think like, I might actually need, that I don't know that I need at this point, right? I mean, So there's those sort of trivial matters. But then there are the big things, the existential things, the things, honestly, that speak to meaning in life and hope and purpose. Frederick Buechner, in his work, The Longing for Home, spoke of this. Here, these words that he penned, he said this, whether we're rich or poor, male or female, our stories are all stories of searching. We search for a good self to be and for good works to do. We search to become human in a world that tempts us always to be less than human or looks to us to be more. We search to love and be loved. And in a world where it is often hard to believe in much of anything, we search to believe in something holy and beautiful and life transcending that will give meaning and purpose to the lives we live. And so this question, what are we searching for? I believe when we are honest, it's not so much just the next purchase or the next trip or the next relationship or the next whatever, when it gets down to it, we are looking, as Beekner says, for that beautiful and life-transcending thing. Like, what is it that will give us meaning and purpose? And Holy Week invites us to consider this search that we're on. It invites us to consider what it is that our heart is longing for. And really, what we have here is a particular invitation. And so not only this morning, but as we journey towards Good Friday and Easter, As we spend time in these accounts that speak of what Christ has done, there's a word that was repeated throughout the text I just read. It's a word that we'll see in the account of the resurrection that we'll look at in the Gospel of Matthew a week from now. And it's this word, behold, to be transfixed on something. Really what today is in this week, our prayer for you, For all of us collectively as the church is that we would heed this invitation to behold, to not be caught up in circumstances, whether the the joys of life or the difficulties of life or anything in between. But rather, in every moment, we would actually be so transfixed, so captivated by this one that we meet here in this text the one that is celebrated on Palm Sunday, the one who makes this triumphal entry in all sorts of unexpected ways, there's an invitation to behold. And so to kick us off in Holy Week, I want to consider three things this morning. That we would behold our need. And so we'll look at this account of these blind men. That we would behold our need, that we would behold our king, and that we would learn more clearly what it looks like to be transformed as we behold this Jesus that we celebrate. So let's start with beholding our need, all right? So we look back at chapter 20, verses 29 to 34. We get a few details, right? It tells us this, and behold, and there's that word, all right? There were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, "'Lord, have mercy on us, son of David.'" Now, that language, I mean, for one, the fact that they were blind. We don't know if they had been able to see at one point and lost their sight. But whatever it is, at this point in their story, their world has gone dark. Everything is chaotic. This means they were likely homeless. It means they likely had to beg for food and just their basic survival. They were not living their best life. There was nothing for them, probably, that just brought a lot of joy. They were dependent on other people. And in the midst of all that's taking place, there's a crowd that begins to, to gather outside of Jericho. All right, And they begin to hear that this Jesus is on the move. And so it tells us that they began then to cry out. And there, here's those words again, like as they're out the roadside. All right, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. There is a desperation that has gripped them. They are honest with their condition. There is so much that I need to learn from these blind men. They are not too proud to cry out. I am far too proud to cry out with my need. I don't think I have a desperation enough. Like, I think my prayer life would reveal something about, you know, do I really believe my need? Do you really believe your deep need for Jesus? Like, these men are crying out. They are In darkness, and they're asking and they're pleading and they are shouting at the top of their lungs, Have mercy on us, son of David. So much that the crowd is beginning to not only grow restless, they're beginning to think, Man, this is awkward. Will they just shut up for a moment, right? To the point that they actually rebuke these men, and yet they just double down it tells us that they began shouting out all the more loudly, even after the rebuke, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Do you and I have any sense of our desperate need for Jesus? This day, this Palm Sunday, as Jesus gets ready to enter into Jerusalem, as he's there, as the crowd is gathering, you have this picture of these two men who desperately know that they need an encounter with Jesus. And what was true for them a couple thousand years ago, whether we would acknowledge it or not, is true for us in this place right now. You and I need to encounter the true king. We need to behold him. They have a great need, and they know that their attention should not be fixed solely on their need, but rather on the one who can do something about it. And so they begin to cry out, and they're crying, son of David. Now, here's what's so fascinating. This shows us there's some irony here. They are able to see before they can see. They are seeing truly and clearly what is actually taking place before the crowd. The crowd actually, Jesus, we'll see, like they they get it wrong about Jesus. They've got hopes and aspirations that have nothing to do with seeing Jesus for what he actually came to do. But these men, they're crying out, son of David. Now, this is a loaded term, This particular phrase here, for them to cry out. They weren't just calling out, hey, helpful teacher. Hey, person who cares a lot. They are making a declaration here. You are the son of David. You're the promised one. You're the Messiah. If we were to go back and read the account of King David's life, we'll read a couple of verses here at a moment out of 2 Samuel. And in this account, David is nearing the end of his life, and the Lord Makes a promise to him that says, you're going to have a son. That son will build a house for me. And that son, all right, the son of David will have a kingdom that lasts forever. And so ever since that time, there'd been an expectation, particularly now as God's people are under Roman rule, as they long for things to be set right. They're longing for a day when this Messiah, this one that they'd hoped for, this son of David would show up. This is why 2 Samuel says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's the promise. And then did you notice Jesus' response? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, yeah, this is obnoxious. You're making everybody uncomfortable. But rather, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of people rebuking these men, Jesus, as he always does, he moves toward the desperate. He moves toward the broken. And he asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I love the tenderness that we see of Jesus here. Jesus isn't asking this. You're like, hey, I thought, he was, you know, I thought he was the son of God. Isn't he supposed to know what they want? Like he knew. It was no surprise. Everybody knew. The blind men wanted their sight restored. But he asked them. He asked them to name their need. And it's this moment of just tenderness and compassion. And that he would kneel down. And though they could hear his words, knowing that one of their senses did not work, that they did not, they were not able to see, he gets down to a point and he touches their eyes and brings healing. It's just this profound, beautiful picture of just the compassion of this king, of this Jesus. They are desperate, they are crying out, and he just asks them, what is it that you want? And then Jesus, as he always does, he moves toward them. But there's something else In this response when he says what do you want me to do for you at this point it is Jesus's way of saying I've heard you cry out for mercy and I've heard you cry out and call me the son of David and when he says what do you want me to do for you it's his way of acknowledging not only to these men but to the entire crowd that is there you're right that's who I am up until this point as people would encounter Jesus and he would heal them and they're getting some sense of his identity, he would often tell people, right? You know, just keep that to yourself because this time had not yet come. But at this point in the story, when these men cry out, when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He is saying, you've gotten it right. You are able to see even though you can't physically see. You have seen who is before you and it's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and I am the one that can heal you, and I am on a particular rescue plan. And so in their desperation, they cry out, and Jesus meets them in that place. They've rightly identified. And so, the question for us as we move here in a moment to actually seeing and beholding Jesus as the king. I wanna ask you to consider this. Have you and I, have you named your need to Jesus? I I don't know the particulars, but I do know this. You brought something in here this morning. Maybe you have not trusted in Christ and you're trying to sort through Christianity. You're trying to think through like, I don't know if I believe any of this. I'm confused by some things like, have you named that to Jesus? Jesus, make yourself more clear to me. Perhaps there is sin that you're caught up in, that you're enslaved to particular patterns, things you hope to have broken free from. Have you named that? Have you cried out to Jesus in desperation, knowing that he moves toward the broken, Would we humble ourselves and would we name it with some specificity this morning? Like, don't leave here this morning without doing business with Jesus through the power of the Spirit and name it. He knows it already, but like the blind man, he's inviting you, hey, what do you want me to do for you? Would you name it? And if you're like, cool, name it and claim it, I want that Ferrari. That's not what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about your need to see Jesus more clearly, to be freed from patterns of sin and brokenness, to have Jesus work a miracle in your life or in somebody else's life. Like what is it that we're desperate for? and would we like the blind man would we cry out would we humble ourselves would we be willing to endure ridicule and misunderstanding and the public shame and scorn that comes out from crying like lord have mercy like that's what i need i've got nothing else i need your mercy and grace have you gotten to that spot because too often What I will do is have just moments of that, but then quickly move into a mode of like, okay, I'll try and solve this, or I'll temper it, or I'll sugarcoat it, or I'll somehow minimize the sin. And Jesus is saying, why are you hiding it? I know it already. Bring it before him and watch what he does in bringing us from darkness to light. Imagine the way these blind men, their world changed that day they're able to see physically what they had already been able to see in their hearts and their minds about who Jesus is, and they follow him to be in his presence. And so the invitation then is not only that we behold our need, that is a crucial first part of this, but we behold our need not so that we grovel and not so that we stay in that place, but we behold our need so that we can cry out and behold our king that you and I might be able to actually behold Jesus. And so, to help us in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 21, I want to highlight just three aspects of this story. Right? Let's look at this. Let's look at the procession. Let's talk about the presence and the plan, because you have to have alliteration. Okay. So let's talk for a moment about this procession. As Jesus... Comes in, right? They're drawing near to Jerusalem. They came to Bethpage, the village, you know, in front of you. You know, Jesus says, "Like, all right, go and, and get this. Go and get this donkey." Already, this processional that's about to happen. As he's getting ready for his triumphal entry, already things are a bit out of whack. So, for one, the two disciples—we don't know who they are. I find this kind of fascinating, right? Just as a good reminder, as sort of in the side, all right. Everybody else gets to be there. It seems like a party's getting ready to happen. There's all this, like, just, you know, all this fervor and energy. And Jesus says, hey, I need you to go into this town. And you got to go find this colt. you got to find this donkey. And when somebody asks you rightly, like, what are you doing? You know, you don't say, I'm stealing it. You say, the Lord has need of it, right? Um, think about those guys for a moment. Like, i got to go get this. i got to get this stupid animal. Like, what, what in the world? But in the kingdom of God, there are no insignificant roles. We don't know who these particular followers, these disciples are, but they have the privilege of bringing this animal, and we'll see the significance of this in a moment, but they get to bring it to Jesus. But it's pretty clear that Jesus is already not operating according to the customs, the traditions. Like, what would have been expected if we're going to behold the king, right? I mean, the king's come in as something that looks like this, like a stallion, a war horse, something that's fast, something that is powerful, something that evokes sort of just this wonder and this awe. I mean, to see Jesus come riding in on that, it's like, I am here, I have arrived, everybody get in line, right? The king is here, but that's not what he does. It's like he goes in the exact opposite direction. It's not that he even just goes and gets a horse that isn't quite as impressive, all right? Like what Jesus goes for is this, right, I mean, this is what he comes in on. It's like, hey, go get that from this town. This is not what's going to intimidate people. None of the Romans are going to be like, oh, look at him on that little donkey, right? Like, isn't that cute? This animal to ride on this, this is what a servant rode in on. This is something that evoked humility. This was a sign historically of peace. None of these things met the crowd's expectations. And this was also, to put yourself on that was to put yourself in the place of vulnerability. I mean, if you're on the stallion, you're on the war horse, right? You're riding that. Somebody comes after you, you can trample them or you can take off. You've got speed and power like at your fingertips. But this, right? Somebody comes after you and you're like, all right, giddy up and let's go. Like, it's over for you. You're not going to escape. You're not going to be able to outrun anybody. You're not going to outmaneuver anybody. You don't have power, any of those things. And here comes Jesus intentionally. This is the animal. So the procession, it communicates humility and vulnerability. This is all going to tie to what Jesus ultimately came to do. He's giving us clues, and he is going to bring peace. He's not come to do away with the Romans the way the crowd wants him to. When they are crying out, Hosanna, like, Lord, come and help us and save us, they have something particular in mind that's very, very different than what Jesus is coming to bring. And so this scene that's taking place, if we were to go back several hundred years, we would meet a prophet named Zechariah, and he would write, and Matthew records a portion of it, but in Zechariah 9, verse 9, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion.'" Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Prophecy coming true. Some 500 years before, these words are written, and now Jesus is saying, that was about me, and here I come, and I'm just obliterating all the expectations, all the things they thought they knew about this son of David. He comes in and everything is communicating. It's not only his words and his actions, but it's also this scene as he is mounted on this particular animal. So that's the procession. Now, there's another aspect of this that I think is really, really interesting. All right. Um, if we were to read one of the accounts of the triumphal entry, if we were to go to the book of Mark, for instance, we would read this. Each, each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell of the story of Palm Sunday, of tri- the triumphal entry, but they all have their own little like, nuances to it or little details. Mark tells this one interesting detail Go into the village in front of you. Immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which, and here's the interesting part the, the, the detail we don't get in Matthew on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. Okay, so we're learning, not only is it this donkey, but we're learning that it is a donkey, all right, that has never been ridden, it's never been used for work, all right, it has never been broken in, it hasn't been trained, it has never been subdued. Which as an aside, again, it's not a not an issue for Jesus. He's the one that created everything. He made it, all right? Those of us that are, you know, ever try and like train an animal, all right? We've got a two-year-old puppy at home that we still have not been able to subdue it. It has subdued us. That's basically what's taken place, right? Like Jesus is not concerned that nobody's ever ridden it. And this, I would put before you, is not an accident. It's not like, oh, we'll grab that one. I guess it's the only one available. No, this is highly, highly intentional, There is a scene in the Old Testament where we read about the presence of God. And the presence of God in the Old Testament was believed to be in the, the Ark of the Covenant that would be put in the Holy of Holies. And it was only on a designated time that the high priest was allowed to go in there to make atonement for the sins of the people. And so around the Ark of the Covenant, it's why when people reach out, when it was falling to the ground and somebody touched it, they were killed immediately. Like, you and I can't be in the presence of the holiness of God. And so the Ark represented that. It's like the presence of God. Now, there's a scene in the book of Samuel again, and this time in 1 Samuel, where the Ark is getting ready to be transported. Look at the details that are given. Think about this. This is the presence of the Lord. It says this, now then, take and prepare a new cart. So get, two, get a new cart, two milk cows on which, and here's the detail, there has never come a yoke, meaning they've never been fastened together with this piece of equipment, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart. So what's taking place here in these instructions is go and get these animals for the presence of the Lord that have never been ridden. They've never worked a day in their life. They've not been subdued. And now we fast forward to Jesus riding on this animal. It's just another way to signify, not only is he coming in humility and vulnerability, not only is he coming in peace, but we also are being told what we've known about Jesus, what was told about him, name it Emmanuel, God with us, the very presence of God. It's not just a great teacher, philosopher, somebody who could work a a miracle or gather a crowd every now and again. What we have before us, what the crowd had before them some 2,000 years ago is the very presence of God riding in on this animal. And so there's this procession filled with the presence of God. It is God himself in the flesh right here. And then this God is working his very, very intentional, deliberate plan. There's some details that we might pass over. They're geography details, which I'm sure you're like, ooh, I'm fascinated. Geography is just riveting. Maybe that's how you are. But generally, we kind of pass over these things. So when we read back at the end of chapter 20, they went out of Jericho. Maybe if you grew up in church, right, you know some of the Bible stories, you're like, okay, Jericho, they walked around the the walls, the walls came tumbling down. Like, you, you get that, okay? But what if we zoomed out for a moment? So there's a procession that's happening, that's communicating. The fact that Jesus is riding an animal that's never been written before, is communicating something about who he is, his identity. And there's something being communicated about the plan. When it says that he moves from Jericho, and that crowd gathers, and then he's moving toward the Mount of Olives and towards Jerusalem, this is highly intentional geographic language. If you and I were to go and study the story of God's liberation of his people out of slavery in Egypt, first led by Moses, all right? He rescues them out of Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, like you're familiar with with all of that. Eventually, they end up in the wilderness. Eventually, Moses, all right? Moses is is taken, all right? His life ends. He does not get to go into the promised land. But the heir apparent, the one who is picked by God and by, by Moses, is a man named Joshua this one who would save his people. And Joshua has the distinct privilege and honor and responsibility of leading God's people across the Jordan River to do battle with Jericho and to make his way toward the promised land, toward the place of blessing, of shalom, of peace. We talked about those words by Frederick Buechner in the longing for home. Joshua has the distinct privilege of leading the people home, to lead them back toward Eden, to lead them back towards the promised land. And so when we, here, we'll put this up here for a moment, like here is a bit of a map, if you can see that, and where some of these places fall. Here's some of the path that Jesus is following, and he's following a well-worn path. It's the path that Joshua led the people on. Friends, this is not by accident. Jesus didn't just randomly happen to end up in Jericho and like, oh, well, I guess we'll make our way this way. It is communicating. It's layer upon layer upon layer that he is working his plan, that God has showed up in the flesh, that he has humbled himself. He's coming to bring peace. He's coming to bring us into his very presence, into the promised land, to our ultimate home. This is what he's doing. And he is deliberate in working his plan so much so that even the geography communicates what he's up to. There is nothing in here that's happening by accident. As the crowd is chanting and the crowd is shouting out, Jesus knows the time has come. When they say son of David, he doesn't rebuke them because he's like, it is true. But in unexpected ways, this king is gonna bring about peace and shalom and meet our longing for home in unexpected ways. We have to behold this. This is what Peter, the apostle Peter, after Jesus has resurrected, He's ascended into heaven and he preaches this sermon in Acts chapter two. Says these words about the plan. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus. He's like, we clear? This is who we're talking about. We all know this Jesus. He says this, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So is there some responsibility, human responsibility there? Yes. Did God also plan it? Yes. Is there a mystery there how those things go together? Yes. Do you think you can fully explain that? No, right? I can't. I don't think anybody can. But here, what we are reminded of is that God is working his plan. And so when Jesus shows up, Peter's commenting on it, saying, He's working his plan. His plan is to come and to die. His plan is to come and die in our place. His plan is to bring about rescue, not from the Romans, but from death, the final enemy itself, to rescue us from sin, Satan, and death, to rescue us and to redeem us and to bring us home. That's what he's doing. And so they cry out, Hosanna. Here's the interesting thing. There's a way to cry out, Hosanna, which simply means like, God, save me, help me. And there's a way, I think the crowd is doing it, which will become very clear as we read through and we study together Holy Week. There's a way to do that that says, Lord, I've got plans, I've got ideas, I've got aspirations. I want a little Jesus blessing on that. Can you bless that? I've thought this through. I just need you to green light this. Just give your stamp of approval. There's that kind of help that we can ask for, but that's asking the butler to help you, not the king of kings. What we see here, a true crying of Hosanna is desperation. It's the blind man. I'm in the dark. I don't know what to do. I've named my need. I can't get myself out of this mess. Jesus, I need you to show up. I need to behold you as the king of kings. And so as we think about this crying out of Hosanna, ask yourself, are you asking Jesus to help you or to save you? And by help, I mean this sort of like just The trivial little things. You're like, oh, I just need you a little bit here, but kind of butt out of this. I don't really want you to be Lord. N.T. Wright commenting on this said it this way. I think this is helpful. And by helpful, I mean convicting. Are we ready, he says, to put our property at his disposal? As we see the people doing, they're laying the cloaks down, right? To obey his orders, even when they puzzle us. Are we ready to go out of our way to honor him, finding in our own lives the equivalence of cloaks to spread on the road before him? and branches to wave to make us coming into a real festival? Or, he says, have we so domesticated and trivialized our Christian commitment, our devotion to Jesus himself, that we look on him simply as someone to help us through the various things we want to do anyway, someone to provide us with comforting religious experiences? Have we forgotten what, in biblical terms, a true king might be like? Like, I hope you're encouraged and uplifted and reinvigorated by coming to gather with God's people on a Sunday. That is certainly a gift and part of it, but it's far more than just a religious experience. Like, the calling is to behold our King, to submit everything that we have, realizing we're not owners, we are stewards, leveraging it all for the King of Kings. Like, this glad response. In Hosanna, like, save me. We're not asking Jesus simply like, hey, will you help me with my plans? We're saying, I submit myself to your plans. Lord, I surrender. Because in the place of surrender is actually where life is found. What are you searching for? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is the need that you need to name and bring to Jesus? You want to see transformation? Let's close with this. The way we get transformed, it's not, get a plan together, and follow these steps, the way we get transformed is by beholding this one who's revealed to us in the text, this king, God in the flesh, humble, bringing peace, vulnerable to the point that he would die in our place, working his plan, the glory of the Father and for your joy and my joy. When we behold that, that's when transformation comes. Not by us pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps, white-knuckling it, just thinking, i got to try harder. That is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel that brings transformation is we just behold the king. So look back with me at verse 8. We behold to bring about transformation, to see transformation, to experience it. Verse 8 says this, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so as we saw the kids come in here a few moments ago, right? Carrying the palm branches. It's just this this scene. And, and to go back a couple thousand years ago, as the branches were cut, there was, on one level, the crowd has particular political aspirations and hopes, and those things could signify that. But let's talk about the real meaning. Let, let's talk about how the scriptures talk for a moment about palms, Talk about the trees, about the branches that were cut off. Like, what if we focus on that for a moment? One of the things I think we would see is that there's something in the scriptures over and over again that we see when the king of kings shows up. It transforms not just you and me, and we'll get to that, but it transforms the natural world, the created order. It transforms creation itself. Like there's a new creation coming. And so one of the passages, we'll see this in a lot of different places, but one of the places where we get this and where it talks about the mountains and it talks about the trees and the branches and everything happening, there's a transformation that takes place in the created realm when the king shows up. So here are these words of Isaiah 55, verse 12. This is what happens when the creation sees the king. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace speaking certainly of like what will happen to us. And then it tells us this, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. Now, I love the majesty of the mountains, be the Rockies, the Blue Ridge or whatever. Yeah, Mount Dora, I don't care. Like mountains, right? Like I love it, but I've never had them break forth into singing. Imagine that day. They are beholding the king and they erupt in singing. And then it tells us this, all right? And all the trees and the field shall clap their hands. And yes, there's poetic language that's being used here, but it is speaking of an encounter. When we behold the king, when the trees behold the king, they begin to clap. They begin to worship. They can't help it. It's why Jesus says, if the crowd is silent, don't worry, the rocks will cry out. Like that is what is the natural response to beholding the king. And it brings transformation, And so friends, for just a moment, whatever it is that you're carrying, that thing you want transformation is, that need that you need to name and bring to Jesus, just imagine for a moment. If Jesus is going to do that when the created order, when the mountains and the trees behold the king and they erupt in singing and the trees suddenly start clapping, whatever that looks like. If that's what happens when trees and branches behold the king, imagine what's gonna happen when you and I behold the king. When he comes back and he does away with all pain and heartache and cancer and brokenness and all the mental health issues and all our physical ailments and everything, all wars cease. And then also imagine the invitation that we have, not just someday to behold our king when he sets everything right, but also right here and right now. That transformation Though it may look different, might be oftentimes it's on God's timing, not our own. God is bringing about transformation, and it happens, how? Not in you getting a good plan together. It comes from beholding. So here are these words as a final encouragement out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, There's this access, there's no shame, there's no covering up. Beholding the glory of the Lord. The more you behold Jesus and his glory, says this, are being transformed then into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You wanna experience transformation? Behold the King. And watch what God's spirit does in and through you to transform you from one degree of glory to another. It'll likely go a different route than you would have planned. It might take you know, more time than you've thought. But know this: the transformation does happen. We behold the king and we are transformed for the glory of the father and for our joy. May we in this holy week behold the king. A king that would go to a cross and a king who would conquer Satan's sin and death by rising again on the third day. That's the week we're invited into, but more than that, friends, that's the life we are invited into. So as we get ready to, to pray, let me just invite you in a couple different things. For one, be praying this week and taking a risk to invite somebody to join you for Easter. We want more people beholding Jesus to encounter Jesus Jesus. If you're somebody that's a follower of Christ and you've not taken the step to be baptized, we're going to celebrate that. It's another way to just make much of Jesus. It is an encouragement to the people of God, not only for you, but for the the church body. And it bears witness. We're beholding the King, the one who brings transformation. Come talk to us afterwards or you can sign up for that at cp.church. Last Easter, you'll see a sign up for that. And this morning, we're also going to respond through communion. If you're a follower of Christ, you're invited to come up to the table. I'll give instructions just a moment. But it's a means of God's grace. It's this outward declaration again, like this, I need to feast on the grace of God. I need to behold Jesus. If I want transformation, it comes from beholding Jesus. So let me pray for us in this. Father, thank you for your word, for your kindness, for sending your son. Jesus, thank you that you are God in the flesh, God with us, and that you would go and die in our place and that you always move towards the broken and the desperate. So, Holy Spirit right now. Help us, empower us to name our need, to bring it to Jesus, to ask him to bring transformation But may it not just stop with naming our need. As we take a look at that and we are honest with that, would we continue to take look after look after look to Jesus? May we behold our King right here, right now. Holy Spirit, give us a new and profound sense the majesty and the wonder that is Jesus. Use the songs we sing use the time of prayer, use this meal that you've given to us to help us behold. And as we do that, God, we pray that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and lasting abiding joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.